This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name's Jim, one of your pastors. It's a gift to be able to walk us through the book of Revelation. In my early 20s, I lived in a predominantly Muslim country. It was great in some ways, intense in other ways. There was a day that I will never forget that it left a deep impression on me. See, I was walking around the neighborhood. I had moved into a new neighborhood, and I wanted to meet some friends. I wanted to meet some folks, and I was out on the street, and I met this friendly guy sitting out playing uh, a little game called Tavla. It's backgammon, but it sounds cooler when you say it the Turkish way. I saw him playing. We hit it off. We became friends. I mean, friends, we were just talking for a few minutes. And he invited me to come meet him at his place of work. And so the next day I showed up at the building where he worked and I stepped into the, the shop, the storefront shop. And when I walked in, I started to notice some things about my environment. I noticed that there was Arabic script on the walls. I noticed that there were a lot of men with scraggly beards and they started asking me questions. Where are you from? Why are you here? Where do you live? They put me in the middle of the room. A guy came from behind me with a razor blade and held it up to my neck. They kept asking questions. That same guy came back with a long match, lit it on fire, and held it up to my eyes and started waving it around my eyes. It filled up a water basin where they would splash my face repeatedly. Eventually, after asking me hundreds of questions, they sent me on my way and took all the money I had in my wallet. Believe it or not, I was able to capture a picture from that day. Here it is. I was visiting a Turkish barber shop. <laughs> they asked me lots of questions because they were curious about who I am. They, 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 they get a really close shave with a razor blade. They use this little match to singe off the white hairs on your cheeks. And at the end of the day, they took all the money I had because I just had enough money to pay for <laughs> a shave. Now, I know that many of us, as we were hearing that story, pictured me abducted, pictured me in some terrorist cell being interrogated, and it was easy for us to picture that. It was easier than imagining a barber shop, even though I had a bunch of clues, razor blade, water being splashed on your face. Why is that? The reason is that we have grown up with repeated images on television or the news and movies of this, these intense, terrifying situations 
where terrorists are interrogating somebody. But we rarely ever see images of a Turkish barbershop, even though that's a common occurrence and being abducted is not. Images shape us. I'm, I'm not here to talk about the portrayal of Muslims in the media, although I think that's an interesting topic. But I want to highlight the role that images play in shaping our imaginations and shaping our fears. Visual images shape our imagination and then shape our fears. Think about your childhood. When you were in the forest, what were you afraid of? You were afraid of bears, and at least my brother and I were afraid of quicksand. <laughs> Irrational, mostly, fears. There's only been two people who've died in Arizona that's been recorded of bear attacks in the last 30 years. And I don't know if anyone's ever encountered quicksand, but every image that you would see in movies or in cartoons, that that's the bad stuff that happens when you're out in the forest. Visual imagery bypasses the rational aspects of our mind and goes straight to the heart, goes straight to the emotions. It shapes our imagination and our view of the world, and it shapes the way that we live. And today, as we look at Revelation 1, we are going to see that this group of Christians that Revelation is written to are being haunted, haunted by images that are trying to shape their fears, that are trying to convey a message that Caesar is Lord, not Jesus, that Rome is is the kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And that you better give your allegiance to those things or else you better be very afraid. They were under the power of the Roman Empire with this brutal emperor named Domitian who demanded the worship of himself, set up little temp temples to worship himself and demanded full allegiance. They were surrounded by images haunting images of Roman power that shaped their imagination and filled them with fear. Now, they knew the risen Jesus. Relatively, the one who was raised from the dead, who defeated death, who created the whole world, compared to Domitian, relatively, there's nothing to be afraid of. But day in, day out, they were bombarded with images that would say, Rome is supreme, Caesar is supreme, give your allegiance to it. They would walk the streets and see statues and monuments. They'd look at their coins and see the picture of Roman gods and Roman emperors. They'd see posters celebrating war heroes and emperors. There were religious shrines, especially devoted to Caesar and Domitian, that you would Give your allegiance to them. And when they closed their eyes at night, they would be haunted by images from their own memories. When they saw fellow Christians crucified in public or fed to lions. All these images carried the message, you better give your full allegiance to Rome and to Caesar or you will pay the price. Be very afraid. And some people began to drift, to comply 
to give their allegiance to Rome and drift away from Jesus and the church. It had been like 60 years since he was resurrected and most of the people who saw him and walked with him had died and they started to doubt what is going on. Is this even real? What would you need in that time to, to keep going, to persevere in a world filled with constant images that say that Caesar is Lord, not Jesus, what would you need? You would need a picture of Jesus that is greater than all of the images that haunt you. You would need to see a, an image of Jesus that he is greater than Rome, greater than Caesar, and that is what the book of Revelation provides. Over and over again, we will see a series of images that provide a vision of reality. They use symbolic language that paint a picture of Jesus as greater, as better than the images that haunt us. So today, we're going to open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, starting uh, in verse 12. So go ahead and open your Bibles now. And in this passage, we see John. He's on the island of Patmos. He's likely imprisoned in a labor camp for his faithfulness and his unwillingness to bow the knee. And he hears this voice, a voice that tells him that he is about to see a vision and that he needs to write it down and send the description of this vision to the seven churches off the coast of the Aegean, modern-day western coast of Turkey. And he looks and he sees a vision. And he sees a vision of Jesus that is so powerful that he falls on his face in worship. And he sees something truly greater than the images, the haunting images of Rome. What does he see? Let's go ahead and look at verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands is one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. These seven golden lampstands. He sees a vision of these seven lamps that represent the seven churches in Revelation. And in the middle of those, in the presence of those, in the midst of those churches is this figure who's dressed like a priest or like a king. And it's Jesus, this priestly king coming to give us access to God and to come and reign over the whole earth. It says that he was like a son of man. John is using language taken right out of Daniel 7, where Daniel sees this vision of a son of man, this kingly, heavenly figure who comes to throw all tyranny and overthrow all tyranny and evil and establish a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And that is Jesus. To them, this would have been powerful imagery, seeing Jesus as a king greater than Caesar and his kingdom more powerful than Rome, a picture of Jesus that's more powerful than the things that they see every day in the iconography and the coins in the streets of Rome. But then things, my friends, get a little weird. 
John is about to describe this kingly figure and give him one of the wildest descriptions of Jesus that you're going to find in all of Scripture. Verse 14 says, The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I think I found a photo online of someone who tried to draw this. Uh, If you want to go ahead and throw that up. Something like that. I mean, what is going on here? This guy has white hair like a mad scientist. He's got fire coming out of his eyes like one of those Marvel superheroes that don't get movies made about him, right? (laughs) He's got metal feet like a robot. And he has this very impractical sword coming out of his mouth, right? (laughs) If you saw that, you would be terrified. You would wonder, is this the same Jesus of the Gospels who cared for widows, who healed the sick, who gently called for the little children to come to him? If he calls for the children to come to him, (laughs) children are going to run. So what is going on here? The repeated use of the word as and like in this passage indicate that John is seeing something that is so great, that is so marvelous, that he can't fully describe it, can't fully put it into words. So what he's doing is he is using symbolic Hebrew images taken from the Old Testament, images that were popular in Roman culture, images that they would be familiar with to describe the characteristics of Jesus who is walking among the churches. It sounds strange to us, but we do this too. We use symbolic, metaphorical language all the time that if you weren't a part of this culture, you'd think is pretty strange, right? Like, for example, one time I remember telling my cousin about a guy on my football team. I I had told my cousin that I was the hardest hitter on the football team my freshman year, and then I had to confess to him that there was actually one who was a harder hitter than me, and the coaches would line us up at the end of practice just for their own entertainment and have us do hitting drills where all the rest of the team watched. But here's the thing. I was number two. This guy was significantly better than number one, even though he was like 20 pounds lighter than me. And I was trying to explain the greatness of this player so that my cousin wouldn't mock me. And if I just told him, look, he's good, he scores a lot of touchdowns, he makes a lot of tackles, that doesn't convey what you would see when you saw this guy on the football field. His name was Richard Hippolito. And so I described him something like this. I said, when you see this guy play, He has powerful legs like tree trunks. He explodes across the line of scrimmage. He he has vision like, like he has eyes in the back of his head. And every time he hits you, you end up seeing stars. I'm not describing a mutant who is on our football team with leaves coming out of his legs and just spontaneously combusts at any moment. 
I'm using figurative language that you would all understand to show that this guy was a powerful football player. And John's vision is so glorious, so powerful, that it's providing a counter image to the powerful images of Rome. And it's so powerful that he has to grasp all of this language that they would be familiar with, all of these symbols and images to show from the flaming eyes to the sword in his mouth a picture of Jesus that's greater than the images that haunted them. So let's talk through each of these characteristics. Verse 14 says that Jesus' hair was white like wool, like snow. Again, John is using language from Daniel 7. So often in Revelation, he's going to pull from Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel. And, he's and in Daniel 7, it describes a vision of God ruling over all of history as a judge and over the harsh, tyrannical kingdoms. By describing Jesus with white hair, he's implying that Jesus is this same God, this ancient of days, who rules over all the kingdoms and generations. He's got white hair showing his wisdom and his timelessness, his sovereignty over time. The king who endures from generation to generation, empires rise and fall, but he endures. Why did they need to see a picture of Jesus with white hair? It'd be easy for them to think, as they looked around, that there was no power stronger than Rome, that there was no king stronger than Caesar, that it would never come to an end, and this is just the end of history right here. But where are they now? Those same followers of Jesus are actually with him now, worshiping their king. And where is the Roman Empire? It's a pile of rubble next to a pizza shop in Italy. The images of Roman temples and Roman coins haunted them, but now they are artifacts in a museum. The white-haired Jesus endures from generation to generation and carries his people through each time, each era of profound suffering and is ultimately bringing them to a day when suffering and injustice and idolatry will cease. We need a picture of Jesus with white hair because it's easy for us when we're haunted by images of AI and natural disasters and social upheaval and corrupt leaders and personal pain and struggles to think it has never been so bad. Nobody has ever been what, through what we're going through in history. And to some degree, that's true. It's true in every era. But every era thinks that they're the worst, that, that no one can handle the problems of today. When little kids were hiding under the desk in the Cold War or the, the crops were failing in the Dust Bowl, historians actually say the worst year was 536 A.D. Do you, any of you know anything about what happened in 536 A.D.? It wasn't the end. But the followers of Jesus in that day cried out in the midst of their suffering, and God carried them through, 
And even when they faced the worst, the worst scenario happened, there was still an episode that came later as they entered into the presence of Jesus. We need a white-haired Jesus because it means that ultimately suffering and tyranny and injustice all have an expiration date because the white-haired Jesus rules over history. A picture of Jesus with white hair shows us something greater than the images that haunt us. Verse 14, we get a look at Jesus' eyes. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. In John's day, they were probably haunted by images of pagan deities that would have fire coming out of their eyes. And it portrayed this idea that these gods are always watching you. And by putting Jesus with fiery eyes, it's giving you the message that actually Jesus is the one who sees everything, who sees all of the images that haunt us and will do something about it. They needed to see Jesus with fiery eyes because they needed to know that someone saw the bloodshed of fellow believers who were crucified in the streets and the forced labor camps on Patmos and the arrogance of Caesar who demanded worship. And we need Jesus with fiery eyes to see all of the wrong that has been done to us and to know that it doesn't get overlooked and that the people who have done that wrong will have to stand and look in the face of Jesus and be held accountable one day. A picture of Jesus with fiery eyes shows us something greater than the images that haunt us. And he doesn't just see the evil, but he actually is going to do something about it. Verse 15, we see a look at his feet. It says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fire. Again, drawing imagery from the book of Daniel. There's this image of all of the kingdoms of the earth being portrayed in this statue that had feet that were made of clay and iron. And it, it was conveying the fact that they are insufficient to hold the weight of all of these kingdoms. But Jesus, with his bronze cleats, this glorified son of man, this kingly figure, is showing that he is strong and firm and steady and more powerful than the idols and ideologies and the kingdoms that come and go. They needed to see Jesus with bronze feet, because they felt like they were getting trampled on by the Roman Empire. And they needed to know that one day, all of the evil and all the things that cause them suffering and all the images that terrify them at night will be stomped out by Jesus with bronze feet. And we need that too. We need to know that he still wears those same shoes, that he still has the bronze feet, and that one day things like abuse and cancer and corruption and loneliness, and idols and ideologies will be stomped out. A picture of Jesus with bronze feet shows us something greater than the images that haunt us. Now look to his right hand. Verse 16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars. It feels like it would be hot. There's debate about the specific meaning. John's later going to say specifically that these are uh, the angels that are associated, connected with the seven churches. Uh, there's debate as to whether these are 
messengers, representatives of the church. They're angels who are specifically associated with the church. But something interesting is going on here that this might be a deliberate counterimage to the practice of astrology in that day. See, in that day, people believed that there were seven planets, and you looked up and you could see that these planets, based on the position that they were in, you could predict your future, and that the planets and the stars were in control of your future. In this image of Jesus holding the seven stars in his hand is an image of saying, those stars don't control your future, Jesus controls the future. They needed to see this. They needed to see Jesus palming the stars because if the stars are in Jesus' hand, it means they're not in the hands of Caesar or Rome or the stars, but he holds the future in his hands and we need it as well. So many of us are haunted by images that we imagine in our mind of the future where we're alone or without good work or with children who are struggling. And these images haunt us and terrify us at night. And so we get the message in our culture that we need to just strive to control the future. It's not about the stars, it's about us. But when you see Jesus palming the stars, we see that the future is not determined by how many hours you work, how many miles you run, the greatness of your parenting techniques, finding the right major or spouse. But Jesus, with the stars in his hand, holds the future, and you're going to go through some wild stuff in your life. You're going to suffer. You're going to have disappointments. You're going to have surprises that are good, but he holds the ultimate future, and he is bringing you to a future day of perfect flourishing. A picture of Jesus with stars in his hands shows us something greater than the images that haunt us. Then we get to the one that everyone remembers. Verse 16, we see the very impractical, sharp, two-edged sword, probably more like a dagger, coming out of his mouth. It also says that his voice is like rushing waters. This speaks to the power of his words, the authority of his words, and that these are the very words of God, that he is the very source of truth and wisdom and reality in a world of lies. They needed it because they were surrounded by lies and surrounded by the messages that Jesus isn't Lord. Pursue the Roman kingdom, not the kingdom of God. And they needed the truth of Jesus. And we need it too. In a world of pundits and podcasts and YouTubers and influencers, we are filled with so much information. A lot of it, nonsense. But we don't often know how to sort through the nonsense and, and the substantive stuff. But what we need is we need the voice of Jesus, the word of God, to cut through the nonsense and speak the life-giving words of truth and show us a bigger story and a better way. A picture of Jesus with the sword in his mouth shows us something greater than the images that haunt us. And finally, we see his face. Verse 16 says his face is shining like the sun. 
John is struggling to find language to describe what he sees when he encounters the glory and the attentive love of Jesus. So he uses the metaphor of the sun, this most universal of metaphors because we've all felt the warmth and the power of the sun. We all see its enormity and how it gives life to everything all around. We, we know that experience of feeling the warmth of the sun on your face. Recently, I was thinking about this, about how I had an experience very similar to the experience that probably prompted John to use this metaphor. Uh, years ago, back when I was in Turkey, um, I got to take a trip to the, the seven churches of Revelation. So this is us standing on some of those Roman, Roman ruins right there. Uh, that's in the town of Ephesus. And you see I look like Fifel Goes West. I don't know. I thought that hat was <laughs> cool back in the day. Um, but that morning was unbearably cold. It was one of the coldest winters on the coast of the Aegean. Usually it's a pretty warm place. I woke up that morning. I went to walk around. And I could just feel my face getting numb. But by the time we started to walk around the town of Ephesus around 10 o'clock in the morning when the sun was coming out, you could feel the cold melting away and the warmth filling my face. And I didn't think of it then, but I'm thinking of it this week, that that same experience that I had was probably an experience that John had. In a place like Ephesus, where he likely visited. And as he felt the warmth in the middle of the Roman towns, he said, this is what it's like to have God shining his face on you. See, in the Old Testament, one of the greatest blessings that you can have is that the face of God would shine upon you. Speaking of God's favor and attentiveness towards you. And John is using this picture of sunlight to show the glory of God, but also his attentiveness and love towards us with his face shining upon his people. They needed a picture of Jesus with a glowing, sun-shining face because in their world and all that they encountered on a daily basis, it felt like the dark clouds of Roman oppression surrounded them. They may have felt like those sweet times that they had with Jesus when it was so clear that his face was shining upon them. When the church was thriving or beginning to dissipate and they began to wonder, is it still real? Is he still attentive to me? And what John is doing here, what Jesus is doing in giving this vision, is Jesus is ripping back the curtains and showing in the unseen realm the reality that is bigger than reality, that his face is still attentive to his people. His face is still shining on them and shining on us. We need this. Because I know that many of us, as we go through life and you just go through a season that's rough, your work's monotonous, 
You feel mistreated by some people. You're, you're tired and worn out. That it can feel like all of those things form a cloud that don't allow you to experience the joy that you once experienced. To feel the things you once felt. And you begin to wonder, is his face still shining upon me? Well, let me tell you this. Even though you don't experience it in this moment, that's okay. We'll go through different seasons. But whether you experience it or not, when you rip back the curtains and look into the unseen realm, Jesus is attentive and loves you and his face is shining upon you. His favor is on you. And you may not experience it in the moment. When I was walking around the streets of Ephesus early in the morning and the sun wasn't out, I wasn't experiencing it in that moment. But that did not mean that the sun had disappeared. It just meant that I needed to wait a little longer. And when I waited longer, then the sun was shining on my face. And for those of us who feel under the weight of those clouds, the reality is, whether you experience it or not, his gaze, his attentiveness is on you and just wait a little longer. A picture of Jesus' face shining like the sun shows us something greater than the images that haunt us. John sitting there, encountering this vision of Jesus with white hair, with fire-filled eyes, with a sword coming out of his mouth, with the sun shining out of his face. And it provides him a counter-image, an image that shows him something that is more powerful than Rome, a king who is better than Caesar. Each aspect of the vision giving an image, a snapshot of something greater than the images that haunt him. And what does John do? He falls on his face in worship. When you see a vision like that, there's, there's nothing you can do but worship. Before we close, I, I want to just ask the question that may be lingering. Is a picture powerful enough? Did John just have an imaginary friend in Jesus? What about real threats? Yeah, it's nice to have Jesus as this thing to help you cope, this better image, but what about real threats? Often the images that haunt us and make us afraid are connected to real things, not just propaganda. The Roman Empire was real and powerful. Should you ever come across a bear in the forest, that's going to be real and powerful. Cancer is real and powerful. Abuse is real and powerful. In the face of real and powerful suffering is a picture enough to get you through. It's not. But what we see, what comes next, shows that Jesus is more than a picture. Jesus is real and powerful. As John is laying on the ground with his face to the ground, worshiping, all of a sudden he, he feels a real hand on his shoulder. 
and he hears a real voice. The one from the vision has walked over to John and is kneeling down and comforting him. And in verse 17, he says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. It's not just a picture. John, a man surrounded by the possibility of death and constant images of defeat. John walks over, Jesus walks over and comforts him and reminds him of the most powerful image, the image of the cross, where he died and, and where the real body of Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death. And he reminds him of the resurrection saying, behold, I am alive forevermore. When Jesus stepped out of the grave, his real body showing real power, it was as if the one who stepped out of the grave, it's as if the picture is stepping out of the frame and saying, this isn't just a helpful story to help you cope. But the real Jesus has conquered death, conquered the grave, conquered sin, conquered the images that haunt you. And he has the keys to death. He has the keys to take you out of the brokenness of this world with him in an everlasting kingdom. And to throw all of the evil and the brokenness away forever. And that is what he's going to do. With a real hand on John's shoulder, speaking with a real voice, we see a picture of Jesus that is greater than the images that drive our fears. But it's not just a picture of a better king, but a real king who will one day overthrow all the sin, all evil, and all the images that haunt us and keep us awake at night. Let's pray. God, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here, for all of us, that you would help us to wrap our, our minds and our hearts around what John saw. That you would help us to have an encounter with you, that our vision of you would expand, and that we would see you as the king above all kings the one who gives us hope for the things that, are, that we long for most. To see you as Lord, would you shape our imagination and conquer our fear just like you conquered the grave. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take a time now to respond. To respond to Jesus. To respond in worship. We're gonna sing. We're going to pray. If you need prayer, we have people on either side of the room who are there to pray for you. We're going to remember Jesus by taking communion as you come forward and you take the bread and the wine, remembering the body of Jesus that was given to you and the blood that was shed. We respond through giving. As we have giving boxes in the back and we respond to his generosity towards us through generosity.
and we respond by singing because he is the one who is worthy of our worship. So let's stand now and let's respond together.